one way forward is changing the educational system. Um, we know that many education systems are are still uh, predicated on, on colonial formats um, through colonizing methodologies and, and ethnocentric approaches. And, and they, they do not make any space for indigenous ways of knowing or for, uh, let's say, indigenous languages. Hello and welcome to another episode of Save Our Planet. I'm your podcast host, Stephanie Septon, and today we welcome a special guest, Dr. Alvaro Fernandez Yamazares, an ethnobiologist based at the University of Helsinki in Finland. His work explores the contributions of Indigenous peoples to biodiversity conservation, and he has more than 30 months of field-based experience working with Indigenous peoples. He did his PhD among the Tsamani Indigenous peoples of the Bolivian Amazon, and now works with the Dasnach community in Northern Kenya. His work includes hands-on actions to revitalize, honor, and celebrate indigenous and local knowledge systems in multiple ways and formats, such as through the recording of radio programs in indigenous languages and the documentation of oral traditions. Alvaro, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're really excited to speak with you. Likewise, thanks for having me. So to start for our first question, um, your work focuses on preserving indigenous and local knowledge systems, also known as ILK. For our listeners, can you explain what those systems are and why they are important? Sure. Uh, we essentially refer to the, to the systems of knowledge and practice and belief that indigenous peoples and local communities have been handing down from generation to generation over, over my linea. Indigenous peoples have, have long histories of place-based living and, and traditions that have created complex and very holistic uh, systems of knowledge. And although these knowledge systems are, are very diverse, they generally share a strong focus on, on, on supporting and nurturing positive relationships with, with the rest of the natural world. So really sustaining reciprocal and responsible relationships with, with more than humans. And why they are important? Well, they are a fundamental part of humanity's cultural heritage, and they are an, a living archive of information on how to address problems such as biodiversity loss or climate change. They, they play crucial roles in, in supporting sustainability, and, and they can offer some important lessons on how to address complex social environmental problems. And many indigenous communities have relied on, on these knowledge systems to support the governance of their territories and and there's many landscapes around the world that that bear evidence of, of sustainable management and, and of the practices and, and stewardship systems of indigenous peoples so so they really are key to to solve big problems such as climate change or biodiversity loss or or our big social ecological crisis you were one of the primary authors of an important paper scientists warning to humanity on threats to indigenous and local knowledge systems can you tell us what were some of the primary findings of this paper? This is a very meaningful article that, that I've written with an amazing crew of 30 different authors from all over the world, including several indigenous scholars and indigenous and local knowledge holders. And it's a paper that essentially raises the alarm about the many ways in which indigenous and local knowledge systems are being pressured all over the world. We know that these systems are uh, very adaptable and very resilient and, and that 
cultural continuity is a hallmark of, of indigenous communities, but the foundations of these systems are, are being compromised by, by drivers such as globalization, colonialism, land theft, dispossession, and, and resource extraction. And, and it's been meticulously documented that, that many of these knowledge systems are being lost and, and destroyed at, unfortunately, at alarming rates. The impacts that this loss has at the social and ecological level are, are, are profound and, and widespread. Knowledge losses can generate uh, legacies of intergenerational trauma. They are tied to, to broader losses of cultural identity. They can take a toll on, on people's uh, well-being. And they can also result in environmental degradation of, of those landscapes that, that have been traditionally maintained through these knowledge systems. So in a way, this paper could be seen as a very, very sad story. However, there's another part, there's another side to the paper, which is that it's, it's a more optimistic and forward-looking side, which is that we, we also highlight the, the many ways in which indigenous and local knowledge holder, holders are taking action to turn around these trends and to safeguard their knowledge systems, their homelands and, and their languages and, and cultures. And, and they are raising up and, and reclaiming their own cultural heritage, and, and they are basically celebrating and revitalizing their knowledge systems and practices. And in the paper, we, we make a call uh, on the global community to support these ongoing efforts. It's, it's a call to, to really stand up for indigenous people's rights and support them in their fight to, to sustain their lifeways and, and cultures in the face of so much, uh, so much disruption. Uh, and we sincerely hope that, that this article serves, serves to honor these efforts and, and raise awareness. So even though there is um, sort of a grim message within the report, there's also a hopeful one. And I think your work also embodies that. You work primarily, um, your, your focus is revitalizing, honoring, and celebrating indigenous and local knowledge systems. And so what, what does that actually look like in practice? Well, thanks for that question. Uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, I am an ethnobiologist, and, and most of the research that I do is, is on people's interrelationships with, with, the, with the rest of the natural world. And that often involves documenting traditional knowledge about lands, waters, and, and wildlife. And in the process, in this process of learning about other cultures and, and how they relate to their local environments, I often tried to, to work with indigenous organizations in, in documenting and revitalizing these traditions according to their, own, to their own needs. So for instance, as part of my PhD, our, our team recorded a local radio program with the Chimane indigenous peoples of, of the Bolivian Amazon. And it was a program in Chimane language that, that was aimed at revitalizing different aspects of, of Chimane cultural heritage. So we worked with elders and political representatives in crafting this radio program as a way to strengthen and diversify the, the networks through which, through which these knowledge systems are circulated and, and transmitted. And it was very, very meaningful because, um, because these communities listen to the radio on a daily basis. So, so that was a way to really add up to the, to the networks of transmission of indigenous knowledge. And it was well received by the local community. So so we were very, very happy and, and satisfied. That's a really exciting sort of progress to hear about. And I know there's another revitalization movement that you have been taking part in in northern Kenya with the Gasnach community. Um, can you tell us a bit about this project? Uh, so this is one of the most beautiful and inspiring projects in which I've had the, the privilege of, of uh, to participate. 
And it's a project that was led by the University of Helsinki. It started in 2016 when, when we arrived to, to the area of Lake Turkana in northern Kenya. This is an area that is often referred to as, as the cradle of humankind because of its um, world-renowned paleontological records and, and, and fossil sites. And it's the homeland of, of the Dasnach community with whom we work. Um, and essentially, when we arrived to the area, when we landed there, we met with the Dasnet Council of Elders, and the first thing that they told us was that they were very worried because their their traditional stories were were vanishing. Uh, and some elders were deeply, deeply concerned about the fact that the young generations were increasingly unaware of of their own oral history, and and they feared that that somehow the cultural collective memory of the community uh, could die with the elder generation. Um, and, and I was surprised because as a scholar, I, I knew about these process, processes, but I, 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 I didn't expect that it would come uh, so explicitly from the, from the words of a community in, this, in these terms. And, and they were basically asking for our assistance in, in helping them to document their stories uh, with the aim of compiling them in a book. And, and, we, and we decided to, to embark with them on this journey and, and the process was just... Um, was just marvelous. Um, as soon as the word started to spread, the Dasnich people would, would start to come from very, very far away places. They, they, walk, they would walk for hours and just to join us and, and be able to share their stories and have their voices included and, and represented in, in the book. And we worked with wonderful elders, with traditional song keepers. They, they were guardians of, of stories and distinct uh, cultural traditions. Um, and yeah, in the, in the process, I, I learned a lot. I, I realized how how documenting these stories was uh, was leading to a general sense of awareness of the importance of, of documenting and, and safeguarding this cultural heritage. It took us three years. It was a very long process, uh, three years to complete the, the project from beginning to end, uh, because it was truly participatory and it was mostly uh, led and steered by, by the Dasnich community. There was a steering committee of, of elders and storytellers and we just basically play, uh, played a, a supporting role. So the Dasnich holders are, are, of course, the authors of the book and, and they hold the copyrights because at the end of the day, these stories and, and songs are, are of course, uh, collectively held by them. They are the ones who have been transmitting them from generation to generation. So, so they are, they are uh, the guardians of these traditions, as I said. Um, and it was a beautiful journey to get, to get this work done. Um, this, this is one of those things that really uh, make, make you feel part of, of something meaningful and, and worth fighting for. This is an incredible project and made even more meaningful by the fact that it was, it's owned by the community, it is their own creative product. Um, and so based on the success of this revitalization, how do you think that similar methods could be applied to revitalize other indigenous and local knowledge systems? Well, one way forward is changing the educational system. Um, we know that many education systems are, are still uh, predicated on, on colonial formats um, through colonizing methodologies and, and ethnocentric approaches. And, and they, they do not make any space for indigenous ways of knowing or for, uh, let's say, indigenous languages. So I think that we should rethink our, our education curricula and, and, and offer opportunities for indigenous peoples to learn about their cultural heritage at the school. Uh, I think that we could open up spaces for place-based learning, bringing storytelling into the classroom, learning from elders, um, 
and strengthening the, those networks of intergenerational sharing of knowledge that that I was speaking about when when referring to the to the Chimane radio program. There's many successful examples of, of indigenous education, and, and they can certainly be replicated in other uh, contexts. Um, in our project in, in Kenya, among the among the Dasnet people, we the, the book was published in both in Dasnet and English, um, and it's now being used in the local schools as a, as a pedagogical resource so that the kids can grow learning their own stories in their own language rather than um, externally imposed stories that, that do not have anything to do with the, with the local cultural context. Thank you for sharing that. Um, the importance of education, it cannot be understated. I think that education is not, a, not an area that comes up very much in our discussions about preserving um, the environment or preserving indigenous knowledge, but it really is a crucial aspect of preserving indigenous knowledge systems. And, on a serious note, shifting the topic just a little bit, do you believe that there is a point where indigenous and local knowledge systems are simply lost and cannot be revitalized? For example, when the youth leave and don't learn their oral histories. And if, if so, when is that point reached? What must we do to prevent reaching that point? That's a, that's a very complex question and there's a lot to, to unpack here. To make an analogy, I could speak about language loss and and share that uh, it's estimated that around 40% of the world's languages are endangered, with two-thirds of all these uh, language extinctions taking place in the last 60 years or so. And of course, many of these endangered languages are in fact indigenous uh, indigenous languages. So, so that gives you an, an idea, or that gives us an idea of the huge pressures that, that we're really facing here. Um, we always say that indigenous and local knowledge systems are resilient and that they have been always adapting to new social and ecological contexts. And, and, and that's certainly true. We, we need to highlight the powerful cultural continuity that there is uh, and, and the fact that these resilience and these resistance are, are hallmarks of, of indigenous people's cultures and, and life ways. However, um, and let me allow me to to use a little bit more of a, of a, of a scholarly language here, we, we, we've been knowing for decades that, that resilience cannot be considered as infinite. Resilience is finite and, and the mechanisms that these communities have to navigate those changes and to absorb change are, are limited. Um, these pressures can be extremely, extremely disruptive. And we're talking about cultural genocide, about indigenous erasure, assimilation policies, uh, boarding schools, um, it's not easy to recover from those pressures. Their, their ramifications are felt over, over, over centuries. Um, but the other side of the story is that despite many colonial and, and post-colonial attempts at, at suppressing and obliterating these, these traditions, indigenous peoples are, are still here. They continue to thrive despite many efforts of, of, of the colonial machinery. Uh, they continue to resist. Uh, nowadays, we, we estimate that at least a quarter of the world's terrestrial surface is managed by indigenous communities. And, and this is something that we should celebrate. So that's why when, when you ask me what to do to, to prevent reaching a, a tipping point, um, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is that we should ask indigenous peoples. They, they are the ones who have managed to resist all these, all these pressures over, over millennia. So, so 
supporting their efforts is certainly the, the best thing or, or one of the first things that we should do. That's wonderful. And I, I also want to ask, and in the case part of celebrating um, indigenous and local neural systems, I understand it as also being celebrating it through through art, through creative forms that are accessible to everyone. And so I'm, I'm curious to what degree you think that alternative storytelling methods, things like film or radio or visual art play a role in re revitalizing and also celebrating indigenous and local knowledge systems. Oh, they, they certainly play a big role in, in changing the narrative and ensuring that indigenous peoples are recognized and, and valued for all what they do to, to basically safeguard life on earth. And, and then, of course, documentary films have a lot uh, to offer in terms of, of bringing visibility to the struggles of indigenous communities, to their struggles in securing their homelands, and, and, and to raise awareness about how all these landscapes of violence are, are unraveling the, their cultural fabric. Mm. I believe that, that all these storytelling formats are, are critical in, in engaging emotions, and, and they offer an extraordinary platform to to advocate for social and environmental justice and, and to have a honest discussion of, of, of what, it actually, what it actually means to be indigenous in the 21st century uh, in the face of, of such an unprecedented social ecological crisis. And, and that's perhaps why I, I, and I have to say this, um, I, I, that, that's why I, I value so much the work of, of People's Planet Project uh, in training indigenous communities to make their own films and share their own stories with their own words. I, I honestly think that that's the, that's the way forward. Thank you so much, Elvro. And I do wanna ask, how can the average podcast listener support revitalization movements even from their own homes? We, we should probably ask this question to our indigenous colleagues. And, and I know that you, that you guys at, at People's Planet Projects uh, are already asking these questions through this post podcast and through all the uh, camps that you are that you are uh, organizing um, just basically asking what do they want how can we support them and, and how can be better better allies um, when I think about it I often feel that there's still so much that could and should be done I, I mean uh, for instance think about the fire in in, in Notre Dame uh, in the Notre Dame Cathedral in, in Paris some years ago um, almost one billion dollars were, were pledged in, in just a few days I, I cannot stop thinking uh, or imagining if, if that same amount of money and support was raised for for indigenous and land defenders on on the front lines of of conflict, um, if they would be supported in their struggles to defend their territories, um, we can be better allies. Quite quite frankly, uh, we can educate ourselves and and maybe even consider our own complicity in 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 those consumption patterns that that have an impact on on indigenous peoples and, and their territories. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, about palm oil uh, and the huge amount of environmental uh, and social disruption that it brings to indigenous communities. We, we can and should rethink our own consumption choices and, and perhaps avoid those commodities that, that we know that are associated with, with indigenous rights violations. Um, and then, of course, I mean, uh, we should, as citizens, as global citizens, pressure our governments uh, and policymakers to, to take action to, to safeguard indigenous rights. Um, as much as we need to document and celebrate the knowledge and, and do that 
exercise of revitalization, I think that it's important to to protect those contexts and those spaces where, where the knowledge is actually held, where, where it's shared and, and where it's circulated. Um, as much as the knowledge holders themselves are important and we need to prevent uh, and, and speak out about issues like oppression, repression, intimidation, threats, violence, uh, we also need to think about, about the, the biocultural spaces where, where this knowledge uh, thrives. Uh, and, and that's something that in, in discussions about uh, revitalization, uh, that this is an idea that is growing traction, that, that um, protecting uh, indigenous people's territories is also a way to protect their cultural heritage. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you would like your listeners to know? Any last thoughts you'd like to leave them with? First, I would like to perhaps say that that all the work that I've been speaking about, the revitalization work in Kenya, the radio program, the warning, um, it's all collaborative work. It's, it's all work that, that has involved and engaged many, many people. Um, I'm just a spokesperson here, but, but the Dasnich community, the Chimane people, our team members, um, they are all part of this journey. I'm, I'm not alone on, 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 on these projects. And I'm thinking of many, many colleagues and friends uh, like Marka Beza, Dana Lepovsky, Isabel Diatreviriego, uh, Job Gwolnasak in Kenya. I mean, it, it's names that 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 maybe the listeners, it's people that some of the listeners listeners might not know, but they are they are uh, people that have had huge huge uh, impact on me and, and my career, and 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 I just want to acknowledge their their huge contributions and support in in making this this happen. I mean, none of these projects would would have been possible without them, and specifically all the. Uh, indigenous and local knowledge holders that have uh, opened the doors of, of their universes and the doors of their homesteads uh, to us. Um, without them, we wouldn't have been uh, where we are now. And, and maybe if I still have time, I, I would probably like to take the opportunity to thank um, all the indigenous uh, environmental and land defenders uh, who are out there uh, leading the good fight uh, they are an endless source of inspiration and and i just i would just like to share that we are deeply grateful for all what they do uh, to make our planet uh, a much better place thank you so much Alvaro. it's been a pleasure speaking with you um i i hope you come back again in the future sometime um thank you so much for our listeners, we've included a link to the report, Scientists Warning to Humanity on Threats to Indigenous and Local Knowledge Systems, in the link below. And for more information about People's Planet Project, or if you're interested in joining the movement, you can follow our latest updates on social media. Thank you for joining us and see you next time on another episode of Save Our Planet. <laughs>